you have your Bible with you, please turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. It's probably, I guess, and with, with good reason, our tendency or temptation to, or largely due to the way that Paul usually closes his letters, that when we start seeing names and things like that, we kind of run over it dismissively, right? It's just names and goodbyes, but this time, these are still within the body of the letter. The actual closing, the proper closing is what we'll focus on next week in verses 25 to 27, and that will bring our series through Romans to a close. Paul is still describing what for him, as he's writing here, as he opens 16, are the desirable outcomes of the power of the gospel at work in the lives of the Roman Christians to create this new life of worship and the transformation of Christians by the renewal of their minds. In Romans 12, 1-2, it's doctrine that renews the mind, the truth of Jesus and the gospel. This encouragement still has as its goal, of course, that they would glorify God with one heart and one voice in chapter 15, verse 7, and also would be willing to support Paul in his missionary work in 1522-32. For this, Paul wants them to circulate greetings and express their oneness. He's uh, letting them know that he's aware of who they are in this fellowship by way of the custom of the Holy Kiss, which we don't do so much anymore, and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. He's, he's still trying to accomplish his purpose in writing as the apostle to the Gentiles. That's still how he's speaking here. He prays like our Lord Jesus did in John 17, 22 to 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So there is, we, we hear it from Jesus, it's being reiterated by Paul, an inseparable link between our oneness as Christians and the mission to which we've been called to proclaim the gospel. This is why if, if the mission is weak in a church, if the impulse for mission is weak to proclaim the gospel, the issue is probably not in the doctrine, it could be, but in the lack of fellowship and oneness among the people, which is why Paul is writing and why it must be fought for to keep that oneness at all costs. So a church's identity can't be found in each other. It has to be found in Christ because we'll put the gospel, we'll make it secondary if the goal is each other. The gospel has to be primary or a church won't be on mission. So this is where this text has urgency for us in particular this morning, for the church as we know it in America this morning, in our day and age, as we've been called for the same reasons to the same purpose, with the same truth and the same gospel. When Paul talks about oneness, he doesn't mean, of course, compromise. You'd be one at any cost. Absolutely not. That much should be clear, but it usually isn't. We aren't talking about putting every difference aside, no matter what it is. Some differences are God's design. Some differences are because God is the only one actually telling the truth based on His truth and His Word in creation. But differences among us that go further or are outside of the truth once for all delivered to the saints cannot be allowed to divide us. And that's usually what divides us. So it's commanded that we don't allow those who sow discord to persist 
in that kind of sinfulness. They will make themselves known. They will keep doing what they do until they're exposed as those who sow discord. Which again is not an easy thing for a church to do. Especially if the church exists for the sake of each other and not for the sake of Christ. By way of warning and promise, God once more calls His church to the oneness that is based on the truth of the Gospel. Let me pray. Our Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. Thank You that You are constant, that You don't change, that You have judged us in Christ once and for all. That there we, He was punished in our place. And that we were forgiven there at the cross, that we were made righteous there at His resurrection. When You vindicated Him, Father, You were vindicating all who look to Him and receive Him as their only means of salvation. So Lord, would You remind us of these things? Remind us that the justification Paul has been so clearly proclaiming in Romans is the basis of our oneness and is the only means to it. And that its goal is that more and all may hear the Gospel. So Father, soften our hearts for Your Word. And Lord, hearts that refuse to be softened, would You remove them for the sake of Your name? We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me begin in verse 1 of Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apionitus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephina and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with him. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with him. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So, Obviously, we're not going to spend a ton of time on these first verses, but that's not because they're throwaway verses. I just tried to say that a moment ago. It's because their purpose is to set up the context for the warning and the promises regarding threats to such a fellowship, to such oneness in the Lord. So we pick it up in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers. So after it's been made clear that Paul is deep in this fellowship of the gospel, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Right? They're among them. They're not always out there. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So this is Paul's final word about the topic he began in verse 1 of chapter 14. The fellowship of the Christians as part of their new life of worship in everyday life from chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. This has included his encouragement to accept one another, to build each other up, rather than judging or despising each other in their relationships between bolder and less bold Christians. That's 14, 1 to 23. It's also included this last section here, the encouragement to all of them to join in fellowship, to praise God together with one heart and one voice in 15, 1 through 13, that they all may see the implications of this in terms of their relationship to him as an apostle called to evangelize in new places as a a pioneer to Gentile nations in 15, verses 14 to 33. Now he asks them to receive Phoebe, to circulate greetings to all of these, to express their fellowship with a holy kiss, receive the Christian greeting of all the churches. So the final word on this topic now, it accomplishes three things here in verses 17 to 20. First, it gives advice about those who threaten their fellowship. Secondly, it puts this struggle to rightly exercise fellowship and overcome those who get in the way of it into its proper perspective. What's happening there in this conflict of these two overlapping ages we live in now that Christ has accomplished His work, the new age of His victory that exists in and alongside the old age of sin and death. That's why there's conflict. So He's saying, pull back and understand why there are those who say they worship the Lord but are serving their own appetites It's because Satan is at work. He's alive and well to destroy the church. And he knows what he would do if he tried to destroy it from the evil outside. That's happening too, but mainly it's the evil inside. Satan is going to work with the raw material we give him in our own heart to be divisive and sow discord. And the main way he's going to do that is by getting people to question the purity of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone apart from works. That's what Romans is ultimately been about. The proclamation of the gospel. That's the contents of the gospel. Thirdly, finally, it gives a promise of the final victory this section does. And the assurance that the grace of God and peace with God are there for us even though we are deep in this struggle. And sometimes church just feels like struggle and mess and difficulty. Verse 17, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. That's exclusive language. Notice, if you match up what Paul says here with a text like 1 Corinthians 5, and who it is that Christians are really supposed to be avoiding, it's rather shocking. You don't avoid sinners. You don't avoid people that aren't good people. You do avoid fake hypocrites that are two-faced and say they love Christ and are actively working to destroy the purity of the gospel. You avoid them. You silence them. You get them out of your midst. All was not well in the church in Paul's day. That statement alone should be rather jarring to us. How is it that less than 100 years, less than 50 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven, the church is already a mess? Well, that's because we're in it. People are in it. People make up the church. 
the word of God is doubted immediately after Jesus ascends back to the Father. Jesus was being doubted while he was literally ascending. If you match up the gospel account, it might have been Luke with the account in Acts that as Jesus is ascending, some believed and some doubted. You're watching this man ascend into the sky and you're like, uh, I don't know. I just don't know about him. Right? Instantly, we have to start doubting and we do. People have to put in their own two cents into the gospel. You can't just trust the gospel to do everything. We have to second guess what Jesus said and did. And notice what Paul says is the source of false doctrine and divisive practices there in verse 18. Persons that cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught do that because they don't serve Christ. They serve their own appetites. Let the Bible describe what they're like to you and believe it. They don't have good intentions. They don't mean well. Those that cast doubt on the gospel are doing it on purpose because they love and serve and worship themselves. Not Christ. They serve their own appetites. They love themselves. They try to flatter others with smooth talk. Over in Colossians, Paul called it plausible arguments to believe different things. And if, if, if it's interesting, this just happened on Twitter. You, you, if you mention something about grace, somebody is going to swing in. If, if you make the Gospel sound like it really is what it is, somebody is going to swing in and say, now hold on a minute. Pump the brakes on that grace train. You still have to do good works. And I would say, when did I say you didn't? Right? But somebody's going to jump in there now. Right? And, and if you push, if you, if you push, which I decided to just, just push. Okay? Eventually, what you'll find is that if that person is not just struggling with what they believe, but is committed to false doctrine, they will end up telling you why they believe that. It's because they find their salvation personally in the fact that they do good works. This guy actually said, I love my neighbors perfectly, at least the ones I know. That's literally what he said. Oh, okay. Then, then therefore you're saved, you see? You, it, nobody said you don't love your neighbor. Nobody said that. But now you're saying that because you love your neighbor perfectly, that you know that you're saved. So it will come out. It'll come out in the wash. It isn't that Jesus is that hard to understand necessarily. No, I don't. He said some things that are in context very hard to understand. Or at least to make sense of. Even if we, even if you kind of understand what Jesus said, it, it'll blow your mind sometimes. But basically what Paul's naysayers were about saying is, is not they weren't arguing these finer points of difficult seminary level doctrine as though there is such a thing. There isn't. Okay? But let's say that the issue they have and Paul's naysayers were saying that you needed more than just Jesus to be justified before God. That's where the rub is. That's who you want to avoid. It doesn't matter if they're your friend or how long they've been your friend. Right? So that's where it gets really hard. If somebody runs counter to the gospel, you are called by God to avoid them in the church. Now, what church is ready to do such a thing? 
Right? These are the verses that tell us, okay, do we really want to be a biblical church? Because we thought that meant like you don't marry gays. Which, right, you don't. But like that's not really what it means when we're talking about, but how do we line up our church with the Bible? Well, number one, point period blank at the foundation, we don't put up with people that question the gospel as Paul preaches it. Because the gospel as Paul preaches it was taught to him personally by Jesus. We avoid such people. We don't even want that leaven in the lump because a little leaven does what? It leavens the whole lump. That's what Jesus was talking about. He doesn't say beware the leaven of the liberals. He says beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy eats a church like aggressive cancer. They said, Paul's naysayers always were saying, look, you do need Jesus, but you need more than Jesus. And here in Romans, in the church in Rome, it was that you needed more than Jesus to actually be a part of the true Israel. Or being a Christian who was a Gentile didn't make you a part of the true Israel. And so you had these factions starting to form. And then it got worse. It got personal into 13 and 14 because you started seeing, okay, and we also have these personal levels of different convictions and I believe this about that and you believe this about that and and here at the end of the letter Paul says listen here's who you avoid you don't have fellowship with them you don't accept them in you don't make a place for them you don't welcome them it's those that question the gospel send them packing avoid them the struggle shows up in every letter Paul wrote basically and he wrote 13 of the 26 books in the New Testament he wrote about half of them or half of it. Now, some of the struggles Paul faces with churches are not matters of doctrinal urgency, right? They're just issues in the church that they need to take care of. The Thessalonians, for example, they had some seriously wrong-headed practitioners among them. The Corinthians, the Corinthians, they're, the Corinthians are just a kind of a mess, you know, just kind of all over the place. But his goal here was, was still to, he's trying to push them, to grieve them even into repentance. But then there were places where teachers were literally opposed to Paul's gospel. To his truth, Galatia and Philippi are probably the two strongest. And so there, Paul said that teachers in Galatia were teaching a different gospel, and it's a doctrine of demons, and they should be accursed. That's literally what he says. In Philippi, he says they were mutilators of the flesh and dogs there, trying to force circumcision on Gentile believers. So you have all that, right? And then you have all these personal struggles that Paul was involved in all the time. Between himself and Barnabas and Mark in Acts 15. Between himself and Peter and Barnabas in Galatians 2. The loss of Demas, a trusted companion in 2 Timothy 4. The incident with Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4 also. Ironically, because Paul was so committed above all else to this gospel, his life and ministry were in constant tension with church people. That's always where the problems were. Right? Paul wasn't, when, when he was in Roman prisons, he was still working for the church. It was like that was an afterthought. Yeah, I'm, I'm in prison again. Let's get down to business here. I'm probably going to get my head cut off this time. You do the work of an evangelist. You fulfill your ministry. Right? To Timothy. There is no easy fix to those relational type problems in the church. They'll be there. Some are too difficult, though, and separation has to come. Because if it doesn't, the gospel is going to get too clouded and overshadowed. But it's always going to be a struggle. But Paul sees a tendency towards 
factions developing in Rome that were going to be a threat to their ability to continue proclaiming the gospel in Rome with integrity. So all the believers there, he's warning them that they have to be vigilant. Some of those that held certain convictions about eating and drinking or holding certain days above other ones were causing their brothers and sisters who were self-righteously judging them for not doing those things to stumble. Many of the Jewish Christians there, at least in name, were looking down on their Gentile brothers and sisters. Tribes were forming. And Paul wants to take them back to the doctrine he's teaching, back to the truth of the gospel. Justification by grace through faith apart from works should level the playing field and make everybody extremely humble and kind and patient and forgiving. And we aren't. Don't feel like, how dare you? That's what Paul says basically to every church. It's what John says in Revelation to those seven churches, like with the exception of one or two of them. Like, look, there are problems. There are just problems. The problem with factions and cliques and a lack of love and self-righteous judgments is that it clouds what this is all about if you let it become big enough. The gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God for salvation. That's what the church is about. It's every personal, I want this, I want that, has to die underneath the gospel. When it doesn't, you've got a mess. And Paul was always pointing it out. So Paul was always in tension and trouble and difficulty and conflict. We can agree to disagree over quite a few things, actually. We really can. But not the doctrine that you have been taught in verse 17, Paul said. In fact, where people do that, where they question the clear teaching of Scripture regarding justification by grace through faith alone, which is the doctrine Paul has been teaching, avoid them. Just avoid them. For example, we as a church cannot have fellowship with the Catholic Church proper, and by that I mean the Pope, I mean the Vatican, I mean Rome, the Catholic Church, because in their dogmatics, in their doctrine, they teach a false gospel of justification by grace and works. They mix them, right? So what they believe in, I, I, you, I encourage you to read and study and find it on your own. Don't just take my word for it, all right? They believe justification is a work of God where you get infused with His grace. That puts you in a position now to be able to accomplish your salvation the rest of the way by your works. And so the level with which you decide to do that kind of determines the destiny of your eternal soul and how much time you might spend in purgatory or not and on and on it goes. That doesn't mean, please hear me, that every individual Catholic believes false doctrine. It does not mean that. Or that they all have to be avoided. Catholics, that is. Absolutely not. This does not mean you can't be friends with Catholics. It doesn't mean you have to separate from your family members who are Catholic if you have that. No. We must avoid, however, their denomination, their dogma, when it comes to saying we have unity. We cannot stand on this platform, on any platform, and preach with a Catholic if it means presenting this idea that we agree and teach the exact same things. We do not, and they would say the same thing. You Protestants do not teach what we teach, right? So, 
In fact, I would say this because we, I, I know that we can. Catholicism is very polarizing. It just it just is. It always has been. It still is in the world. But but please just if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, please hear what I'm about to say. What I said earlier about how the Catholic Church has to be avoided because they teach a false gospel that says we're justified by grace and works, that what grace really does in Christ is it wipes away original sin from Adam. But then it enables us, now that we have it, to accomplish our own salvation by our works. Listen, most Protestants functionally believe that. So let's be careful. Most of us in our heart of hearts believe that we're saved by God's grace, but there's also something we have to do. And now that we have Jesus, we can do it. And and look, beloved, you are commanded and called, just like me, to do good works, a whole lot of them. So do them. What are we talking about here? Aren't you supposed to do good works? Yeah. What are you doing complaining to me about Mike? You do yours. Go save yourself. Go get your assurance. Why are you rattling off to me about the good works we're supposed to be doing? You're not doing any right now. Get to work. If you take it that seriously, if you're that afraid that by preaching grace somebody's not going to do good works, then get busy. What are you doing talking about it? Go do good works, man. Go love your neighbor perfectly like Jesus did. Go love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Go do it. Go forgive as Christ has forgiven you. What are you standing around having a conversation for? You're losing time. I think we all believe this in some way. I would just say, don't be so quick to judge your Catholic friend when at the practical level, we both probably believe in some measure that salvation is actually a mix of grace and my good works. And maybe we think it's more grace than good works than they do. Maybe it's that. You know, we, we believe, do we, is that what, is that how we think? We've been infused with grace and now we can do enough to save ourselves. Is that what we, if we believe that, we're Catholics. And Paul says that's a doctrine of demons. I don't care who's preaching it. That's a doctrine of demons. It's a different gospel. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's a false gospel. And it's right there in Galatians 3. Like I just quoted Paul. How do we believe that? How do we ever come to believe that? Well, yeah, I, I got saved by grace. God doesn't save by works, but... But now I, it's, it's up to me to prove that it's there and to obey and to do enough because if I don't do enough, maybe I'm not actually saved. And Paul would say, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the works of the flesh? No, you're never perfected by the works of the flesh. That's not why we do the works of the flesh. We do the works of the flesh that we are commanded to do as Christians for the sake of our neighbor and our loved ones and the world around us. God is satisfied with you. On account of Christ. Don't work for Him. Be thankful for Him. And be joyful because you have Him. And live your life freely. Which is why Christ set you free in the first place. Where that is being compromised. 
where that is being questioned, where that type of radical exclusivity is being, eh, avoid, 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 kick out, avoid, whatever you have to do. Those of you on the left probably couldn't see my foot, but I did a kicking motion this way for kick out. Thank you, Rick. Nobody laughs at my jokes anymore, man, but I appreciate that. I do. So it sounds... How do we know if we have fellowship with another church or Christian or if we should avoid them? Right? Because you, what you don't want to do is run out and start saying, anybody that sees things differently than I do, I have to avoid them. You don't want to do that. And that's not what Paul's calling us to do. He just said with people that have differences to welcome one another. So there is a, absolutely a place for that. This is doctrinal. So how do we know if we have fellowship with another church or Christian or if we should avoid them? And I'm not talking about like, like Mormons. That's a false gospel. Jehovah's Witnesses, that's a false. Those are cults, right? This is like, do we have fellowship with our Methodist brothers and sisters, with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and on and on it goes. I think it sounds overly simplistic, but I think the basic gist has to be this. What do they believe Paul taught about justification? You say, well, shouldn't it be what... what? Yes, Paul, though, that's why Paul is so important. Jesus appears to him personally and says, you will be my apostle to the Gentiles. And then that man writes half of the New Testament to us because he got a certain deposit of information and so if you want biblical clarity as a whole, you have to have Paul. Paul's not more important than Jesus. Clearly, the issue is that Jesus decided in his sovereign authority to give the instructions to Paul specifically for the church for all time, even to more of a degree than the rest of the apostles. Although they're not less than Paul or under Paul or we don't have to listen to them. They don't contradict each other. But you have to have Paul or everything won't make sense. Jesus personally commissioned Paul to say to the church in his day and by the Spirit to the church for all time. When, when he says this, don't depart, don't get contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. By whom? By me. Right? In this letter. So if we're looking for the easiest bare bones way to say it, we have fellowship with any church or Christian that teaches we are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the Word alone. We do not have fellowship with any church or Christian that tweets that in the slightest. Not on a not on a Christian level. They should be avoided. They should not be welcomed. They should not be co-opted. It's, it's very good that we have an impulse to be one with as many Christians and as many churches as we can. That's a biblical impulse. But when the gospel the gospel is what creates that fellowship, what creates that oneness. So when it's the gospel that's being questioned or doubted or added to or taken away from, which is two wings of the same horrible bird, adding to the gospel, taking away from the gospel. That's when you say, okay, you have to be avoided. You can't be allowed to mix with that and, and let that wreak havoc on the people in your church. Right? It's a soul killer. There are Christians that and I mean, it's it's very hard sometimes to discern. There are Christians that say I preach a false gospel because I preach grace too much. So you could very easily accuse me of smooth talk and flattery, um, because I try to release you from the bondage to man-made traditions or convictions. Right? You could. I've had people. There's been people that have left our church because they don't like the way I emphasize grace. 
These are the things I've been told by those persons. Or because I don't agree with patriotism in the church. You've had people leave over that, at least one that I know of. Or because I have no conviction against drinking. Right? People get very upset about these things. And so, and they become gospel things. And so you think, I can't, clearly, I can't have fellowship with that person if they don't agree with this thing. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've been called some real nice names and chewed up and spit out behind my back because I'm not a premillennial dispensationalist, maybe. Right? I mean, that, that happens. And I was doing a study on Revelation, a whole different study on Revelation popped up outside to question what I was teaching. So this, this happens a lot. And I think what will happen is all of us can fall victim to this is you, you, you're, we're actually disobeying verse 19 here. And what Paul, Paul's like, I, I, I know that you're in Christ. You have the obedience of faith in Christ, but I want you to know something, right? I, I want you to be very wise when it comes to what is good and very innocent when it comes to what is evil. And evil here would be doctrinal, not moral, right, in context. Anything that adds to the gospel. And we all, we all need to be discerning, absolutely. But, but don't get discerning in things that don't matter. Don't hang your hat on things we can agree to disagree on. You, you don't part over those things. You don't. That's how you know there's an idol. If I'm willing to part with you over something, it's what I worship. And that can either be Christ, or it can be something else. If it's not Christ, it's evil. It's something else. Right? Have you ever thought about that? Right? Why do you call me good, Jesus says? Who is good but God alone? If it's not Him, it's not good. Right? When it comes, we, we, we can agree to disagree when it comes to difficult texts or difficult issues where there's no true consensus, things the church has been trying to figure out since the church started, we shouldn't think that our generation is going to finally figure all that out and therefore we can get very dogmatic about it. You don't want to go there, right? What we can be dogmatic about is what the Bible says we can be dogmatic about and the gospel is one of the only things. When it comes to what Paul taught about how a person is made right with God, you can't give an inch. You can't give an inch. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So, learn to pull back at the first but that you hear. Pull back. Just You're going to need to do some discerning there. You know, I mean, there's a big difference between a believer or a new believer trying to figure things out, but doesn't that's different. You don't avoid that. When you have a teacher of the Word clearly questioning the sufficiency of Christ in the Gospel, you need to avoid that. It doesn't matter anything else good they might have to say. Right? That's the stuff that will kill you. Yes, we're saved by grace, but when I, when I personally, when I, when I hear that, I'm out. I'm out for what it's worth. I'm not giving anything else that comes out of that teacher's mouth an ounce of credibility. Personally. Because you can't improve on Jesus. You can't improve on Paul. You don't need to clean up what they said so that it sounds do you realize how crazy you have to be to say now what Paul meant to say was what Jesus should have said was really and again very rarely will you hear those sentences but when you're just 
all out changing what a verse says because you don't want it to mean what it says, you at least have to say, okay, why would I do that? Right? Why would we do that? If somebody adds a but where Paul or Jesus have stopped talking, they're not worth listening to. Avoid them. But not just because they're wrong. And God's children need to accurately know the truth. Also, and mainly in this text, the reason to avoid them would be because being wrong on doctrine can negatively affect the congregation and that will hurt the mission. Remember what Jesus prayed for. That they may be one, Father, the church, even as you and I are one. That the world may know that you sent me. The dividing of the church over what is not the pure truth of doctrine is killing the mission to proclaim the gospel. And we're so embedded in it. It's such a part of our culture to be divided that we don't realize this. We don't normally realize how our own personal things that keep a church at odds with each other or this brother at odds with that brother, it's not just about you because you aren't your own anymore. You're bought with a price. You're a living sacrifice. You're affecting everything. We're affecting everything. We belong to each other. We're one. It's like in a marriage, you're one flesh. If I blow it, it looks bad on my on my wife. It looks bad on my kids. We have to keep making the connection between our oneness and the mission to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. Paul knows in verse 19 that, again, these are believers. They, that's the obedience he's talking about there, the obedience of Romans 1, uh, of, of faith. But he wants them to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Right? You, you don't need to chase every single thing and every single teaching and every... Like, let's look at this new book. Look at... What do they believe about justification is the first question you always want to ask. Always. Always. Because how a person believes a person is made right with God will affect their counseling. It will affect their um, their good works. It will affect their sanctification views. It will affect everything. Everything. And there's a tendency that we have, and, and part of it is because we have access to so much information that we, we, we feel like that because there are all these outlets to get doctrine, we are somehow obligated to go after all of them because it's good to know and to study, right? It's good to be wise with what is good. It's not just good to be wise in general. That doesn't save. You want to be wise to what is good, innocent to what is evil. And again, here we're talking about things that are taught. And doctrine that is taught that deviates from justification by grace through faith alone, that's evil. Avoid that at all costs. We, we, we have the internet, we have social media, we have books, we have TV preachers. By the way, before I just remembered something. There was also, when I was doing Revelation, I think there was a women's Bible study in our church where they were looking at it. I was, I'm not talking about that study. Please, ladies, if you were in that, don't think, oh my gosh, no, I'm not talking about you. Uh, there was like a whole other Bible study that I heard about where it was like, let me teach you what Revelation actually means. Ladies, I'm not talking about you. So the Thursday morning group, I think, relax. I'm not talking about you. Yeah, it just dawned on me. You have all these, um, you have internet, you have social media, you have books, you have TV preachers. We have, we have people, again, this is what I'm talking about, with no pastoral oversight, approval, or accountability at all. They just, I'm going to have a Bible study in my house. They pull people from all kinds of churches where 
God has already placed shepherds over those people. And they just teach them whatever they think the right view of Scripture is. Beloved, you don't need tons of voices telling us new and increasingly more interesting things or takes all the time just because it's fun to learn or it's good to learn and learn. Is it? Right? That's dangerous according to Paul, depending on what you're listening to. What we need is everyone that we do listen to telling us the same thing all the time. It would be better if we were completely unaware of false doctrine, but were absolute beasts when it came to the truth of Scripture. It would be good if we were a little more stupid on every single thing under the sun. Christians comment on everything. The world doesn't need that from us. There's a guy this week got himself into hot water. We preachers do that because we talk a lot. But he, you know, there's this there's this big um, dust up nowadays with with authority in the home and the role of the male and the role of the female. And so, you know, the text in Ephesians that wives should submit to their husbands is to the Lord. That's misogynistic and patriarchal. And so, you know, it's very it's that sarcasm. It's very you know dangerous and all that. And so, the, the pushback against that, or the pushback against the, the biblical teaching on authority in the home, the pushback against it is to um, say, you know, that's um, what am I trying to say here? Let me get my thoughts together. When that is, when the biblical teaching on submission, for example, or, or authority in the home is is uh, rebelled against, the pushback against that rebellion, okay, normally becomes misogynistic and chauvinistic. And so you had this guy, because like that's the only answer to, we have to doubt what Paul said in Ephesians. Well, that's what Paul said in Ephesians is hard to understand. We're equals. I'm not more important or superior to my wife. Like, So when I read wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, we need to know what that means. You can't just say, okay, therefore, I want steak tonight, we're having steak. That's not how it works. Right? And so the pushback against that, because the other side is going to say that's all that means, then it must mean that. That you just you just do whatever your husband says. No. And this guy this week was saying that um, if he notices his wife reading a book that he doesn't like, or on a theological position maybe he doesn't agree with yet, he tells her to stop reading it because she's not going to get anywhere where he's not yet. So in other words, he literally said she's not allowed to outpace me, so she can't learn before me. Okay, that's. That's literally what was said. Alright? And then he said, I, there are people in my life that I have absolute control over. And like my kids, I tell my kids when they're allowed to go to the bathroom. And so he just, you know, started talking about it. And, okay, then I wonder how many times your poor kids have peed themselves because you tell them when they're allowed to go to the bathroom. Right? So it gets, so in other words, here's my point after all that. I don't think the world needs to, to hear us having that discussion. Preachers don't know everything about everything. We, we don't. And you, you probably don't believe that, but just in case you do, like, like, Pastor, what do you think I should do about, about this thing or that thing? I, if, beloved, if, if it's outside of this, I, I don't know why my opinion would be any better than anybody else's. Right? If, if, like, if you ask me about how to work on a car or something, I'm going to point you to a mechanic, right? These, when the, the church needs to be very deliberate about being exclusively single-minded about the gospel. It's not that we can't have these conversations, but when you start platforming 
I'm going to comment on this. I'm going to comment on that. It's the gospel. like Because I don't know that man. Maybe he didn't mean it the way that it sounded. Okay? But if all you have is the video, and he, that, that's, he, he's choosing to post that online, if that's all you have, that's all I know to go with. So if we're going to get called out for what we talk about, let it be the gospel. Always the gospel. We don't have to be able to answer every question. And you aren't an insufficient representative of the truth if you don't know everything about everything. Sometimes it's good to say, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. Even religious ones. When people ask, like, like atheists come up with some real zingers. And so sometimes you just, you don't know how to answer these questions. Say, you know, I, I, I guess I, I don't know. I can't answer that. My favorite has always been if God was all powerful, then can he build a rock that he can't lift? No, yes. I don't know. I don't know what that, I don't know what the answer to that would mean. I, I, I mean, it's a trap, right? If you say yes, well, then he's not omnipotent. If you say no, then he's not omnipotent. So, but that's not how you arrive at truth. You don't create false categories, right? But the issue is so crucial to Paul here, and I'm done, that he attaches a promise to it because this is going to be a struggle. In other words, this is how cosmically monumental this is. That when it comes to avoiding people within the fellowship of Christians that go rogue on the gospel, apparently it's going to be such a fight and such a heart-rending fight that Paul is going to take a moment to remind us of the promise. Not just a promise. The promise in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You know where that comes from. That comes from Genesis chapter 3. And there, it was the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And look at what Paul says here. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. For the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So, our vulnerability... Until Christ returns, you and I are going to be subject to the schemes and the wiles of Satan, even in the church sometimes. But our vulnerability will very soon come to an end. That's the encouragement. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Remember Romans 8. And because we are in Christ, by grace through faith alone, Paul says, when Jesus crushes Satan's head, you will be hiding in his boots under your feet. So may the God of grace be with you. All is well, beloved. God is in control of all these things. We, our role is to listen and believe Christ and discern when he's being misrepresented. What he has told us is sufficient. If he hasn't told us something, we don't need to know it. By way of warning and promise, God once more calls His church to the oneness that is based on the truth of the gospel. All this comes on the heels of missionary appeal from Paul. So having right doctrine, that's not so you can pass a test. It's not about being smarter than other people or even being proven right so that other people look wrong. It's about the power of the gospel that saves sinners. That's what doctrinal accuracy is for. That's what it's about, the gospel. 
This gospel has the power to make us one. It can give us one heart and one voice with which to glorify God. Despite all our personal sins and weaknesses and shortcomings and all the things we get wrong and all the things we don't know that we wish we did and don't even know we don't know. He's stronger than all that for us. And when we are rock solid in our doctrine of just how this holy God saves sinners like us, when we're like that, then we're a force to be reckoned with for the enemy. We aren't called to reclaim the world for Christ, but that's not the battle lines we're on, but to proclaim His gospel. He warns us not to tolerate those who question it because that will erode our assurance, it will poison our souls, and this will kill our missionary DNA. If the gospel isn't everything for the church, it will be nothing for the world. So let us be wise in the gospel and fools in everything else. Not only will it conquer all that keeps us from fellowship with one another, it will be a shout to the world that they'll have to listen to because the grace of God is the power by which He saves sinners everywhere, all the time, without fail. As He has saved you, I pray and hope. 